0: Chapter Matthew chapter 22, as you're turning, if you uh, are turning to Matthew 22, we'll flip back a couple of chapters and review a few things that went on before this. It's really important for us to understand context when we read the scripture. I'm guilty of this as much as the next, but I'm afraid it's kind of fallen out of fashion to read long sections of scripture, and we have a compartmentalized view of what the Word of God tells us sometimes. We don't understand it as well as we should without knowing the context. And so if you go back a few chapters in the book of Matthew, you will see some extraordinary events that have taken place. We see in chapter 21 that Christ makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that People are shouting and praising Hosanna and laying down palm branches as he enters triumphantly into the great city. We see that shortly after he arrives, he cleanses the temple and drives out all of those who are doing things they ought not to do, proclaiming that his house should be a house of prayer. Well, the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and the Pharisees, they didn't like this very much because he's upsetting their order of business, if you will. And so they begin to get together and debate about what to do. They challenge his authority. And he does what he always does. He begins to preach. And in this case, he's preaching to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and that's important for what we're going to see next, because he begins to give them parables where he describes themselves to them. Now, I don't know your heart. I don't know your mind. Many of you I don't know very well. A few of you I've met. But the reality is the power of God and the Word of God is what it is, and it is something that will go directly to you if you listen and pay attention And the Holy Spirit helps. And so Christ doesn't have to know these individuals. And I don't have to know you for the word of God to have its proper effect. And so he begins to tell them about themselves. He tells them of the, uh, the two sons in chapter 21. He tells them about the parable of the landowner. And then they suddenly realize in 21 verse 45 that he's talking about them. And they say, and And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he spake of them. And so they got wise very quickly that he was talking about them. He gives them one more parable talking about the marriage feast. Again, also talking about those who think they're ready but are not. Those who will be left behind without a faith in him. He is preaching it to them. And then we see this transition where they get together. Now the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of enemies, not really enemies, but they weren't exactly always getting along. And they decided to get together. Now they're really going to get Jesus because they don't like what it is that he's preaching. They don't like what it is that he is saying. So we see in chapter 22, the Pharisees try to trick him the first time. They bring him a coin and say, well, are we supposed to pay taxes or not? Was well, that a question we could ask today, isn't it? But he goes and he asks them, are we supposed to pay taxes? And he does very well. And he says, well, whose picture's are on this coin? And they tell him Caesar. He says, well, give it to Caesar. So then it came time for the Sadducees to try their best test. And that's where I want to look at today. And so that's important to understand who Christ is talking to and dealing with. So in Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 23 We'll read through verse 33. says, And the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, and raise up the seed unto his brother. Now there was with us seven brethren. And the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And the last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall be of the seven? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, but are the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read that which is spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So that being the main text where I want to take our lesson from today, and specifically, do you not err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God? So the Sadducees uh, came to him to try, again, and lay a trap for him to trick him. The Pharisees had tried. It didn't work. So it was the Sadducees' turn. So they step up to the plate, and they pull something out that almost sounds unbelievable. And to understand this, you got to know a little bit about who they were. So the Sadducees were really the the ruling elite. They were uh, uh, highly political. And their theology was more about politics than it really was about religion. Does that sound familiar today? We might see a lot of that in our country. We might see a lot of that within our own families who are nominally Christian, if you will, who identify as being related to the faith but are more interested in politics and everything else going on than they are really in serving the Lord God. And it was no different then than it is today. And so they were this ruling elite. They had a majority, if you will, in the Sanhedrin. The the chief priest that year, the one who was spiritually in charge, was also uh, a Sadducee. There's a couple of things that you need to understand about them as well. They denied that God was involved in everyday life. God was something far away who had no involvement in the day-to-day living of people. They also denied that there was a resurrection or any life after death. They believed simply that when you died, it was over, it stopped. Again, does this not sound familiar to what we hear today? They didn't believe in or denied to some degree everything past the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scripture. They also didn't believe in a spiritual realm, any angels or demons or anything of this nature. And so we have an understanding of who these people are. They're very wealthy. They're very powerful. They're very influential. They run everything in Jerusalem. And they have kind of gotten uh, friendly with the Romans who are the occupiers. And they're wanting to not upset their power, you see. They have a good thing going. And so Christ is coming along and he's questioning this. And he's risking upsetting every bit of this. So they ask them their question. And let me get back to this. It said, the same day the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, asked him about what happens when someone is resurrected. Now, this is about as foolish as someone who's an evolutionary biologist asking, were frogs made on the fifth day or the sixth day? Because they're kind of in water, but they're kind of in land. And we step back and we say, this is a foolish question because you don't believe in evolution at all. You don't believe in creation at all. So why are you asking me what day such and such was created? These folks didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't think that there was anything after life. You simply lived your life and you got whatever you could out of it and you, and you died. And so the very idea that they're asking this question, so tell us what happens. Who is married to this Uh, woman after these seven brothers had married her in succession according to mosaic law none of them had children and who is she married to when they're resurrected the idea of asking this question is foolishness on its face And Christ knows this, but he doesn't call them out saying, you're being hypocritical. He doesn't call them out and saying, you're being contradictory. No, he calls them out on two very important fundamental truths that are as true today as they were then. You err not knowing the scripture and not knowing the power of God. And so the question I have for us today is, do we know the scripture and the power of God? Or are we like the Pharisees or the Sadducees who don't really understand what's going on? And I firmly believe that you must have confidence in both those things. You must know both of them to be a fully functioning, mature child of God. You must know the scriptures and you must understand and know the power of God. So Let's talk about scripture for just a minute. I, as I hope you, believe that Scripture is complete. It is authoritative, it is inspired, and it is holy. God has given us the Scripture, carried along by the Spirit, as the Scripture tells us, that inspired men wrote the Scripture down for us, and it is here for us to live by. We must believe the whole Scripture and what is in it. All Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction and training in righteousness. And in Hebrews tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing of the soul and the spirits, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the word of God is living and is powerful. And is able to tell the difference between the soul and the spirit. I can't even define the difference between the soul and the spirit. I've tried. It's hard. It's a challenge to understand where that ends and where it starts. And the Spirit of God is uh, living in the Scripture, and the Scripture allows us to do that. It will tell us when we're wrong if we listen to it. It will encourage us when we're right if we will listen to it. It is the Scripture that we stand on. And without the Scripture, there is nothing else to stand on that God has given us. We must preach and teach the full gospel of Christ. It has become incredibly fashionable today, just as it was back then, to take only part of the scripture. See, the Sadducees did that too. They said, no, no, just the first five books count. And the rest of it, well, we're not so sure about that. And if you think through this, you've probably heard similar things today, have you not? Well, I only read the New Testament. Well, that's all you have. That's terrific. But the Old Testament is unbelievably vital and important to understand. It is guiding us to what is revealed in the New Testament. And we must thoroughly understand it. We must study it. We must show ourselves approved of the Old and the New Testament. Perhaps you have heard someone say, well, I just read the red words, you know, the things that Jesus spoke. The rest of it is just kind of, you know, whatever, fill in stuff. It is the entire word of God that we are given, and all of it is for us to obey. We cannot pick and choose what we want to read or study. We cannot pick and choose what we want to preach, and we cannot lay aside things that are culturally unfashionable today just because we want to. And so if the scripture reveals to us how we should live in certain ways and things we should do and not do, then we must be obedient to them. Whether we like it or not, whether it's fashionable or not, whether it's the end thing or not. And so we must turn to the scripture for our answer on all manner of things. What marriage is, what we should think about abortion, what we should think about addiction, and so on and so forth. And not let ourselves be bent to the winds of the world today, but instead stand firmly on scripture. We must not make the same mistake that the Sadducees made. We must believe in the scripture. And of course, if you carry on in that chapter, and I'm not going to read it today other than to say this. A few verses down after this challenge, Christ gives the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The world will tell you today that we are a religion of no's or don'ts. Don't do this. No to this. No to this. But we also, although we don't think about it very often, are religions of we should do X and we should do Y. And what we should do is we should love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And to fail to do that is a sin. And as those very words... Spoken by Jesus himself just moments seemingly after this, even though I'd heard them many times throughout my life, is what brought me to my knees as an 18-year-old and was the reason I was saved. Because I realized I'd never actually loved God. And to not love God is to actively sin against him. I'd been a good boy. I hadn't done this and I hadn't done that. I'd followed a lot of those rules really well. But the one thing I hadn't done was love him like I should. And the reality is that's just as much of a sin as doing the other things. And so we have the full scripture here that we must be obedient to. We must not err not knowing the scriptures. If you have not devoted a portion of your life to knowing these scriptures, you need to. You need to. You need to. You need to. It's fundamentally important to everything that you are. But the other part of this that I think is also missed is this discussion of not knowing the power of God. This is where I want to spend just a few extra minutes talking about this because it's so vitally important that we as believers understand this, that we know and understand exactly what the power of God is. Because if I was to walk into many churches across our country today, while they may stand here and preach the word of God to you, there is no power within that word because well, they're failing to know the power. So what are we talking about? What is it that God is talking about? He says "You err not knowing the scriptures, And secondly, not knowing the power of God. Well we can take this very literal and look at exactly what He's talking about. They are discussing the resurrection of the dead, which is impossible. It is absolutely, fundamentally impossible, except for the power of God. The power of God is what raises people back to life. It's what raised Christ back to life. And the power of God is what will raise you and me, if we know the power of God, back to an ever-living life. Because God is not a God of the dead, as the scripture says, as he quotes here himself. God is a God of the living. And this means that everyone who has been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is alive in heaven living with God by his power. And to deny the scriptures or to deny the power within the scriptures of God to raise the dead is to deny the very nature of who and what God is. Because he is all power. He is the source of everything living. He is the source of all things as the creator. There is nothing new other than what we remake with the abilities that God has given us. He is the first thing. He is the creator. And as such, all power is seated within him. And when you deny God, you deny the power that God has within him. Now, we can have this power in a way. I'm going to be flipping through some different scriptures here. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be... Fairly quick, though. Romans one sixteen says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what this scripture says is that we receive the power of God when we are saved. Why? Because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And when we are saved, we are brought to life. It's the same concept as if we were physically dead and brought back to life. And the only one who has the power to bring me spiritually from the dead to the living is God. It is the power that he has because he is all power and does and controls all things. And so we can receive part of this power at the point of salvation because he saves us, because we are a new creature, because we are reborn, because we finally become alive having been dead in our sins. This power is given from on high to us for our salvation. It's important that we understand that. But we also have to remember that just because we have been saved and received this saving power, it doesn't mean that I possess this power. There's many a men who've stood behind a pulpit who've gotten this completely wrong, somehow thinking that they have the power to do something. It is God alone in the Spirit of God working in us and in this world that has the power. I have nothing. Brother Neil has nothing. We are nothing compared to God's power. And any influence that we might have is only for the sake of Jesus Christ and His Spirit. Acts 3 Verse 1 through 12. I want to read this account because I think it really paints the picture. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried. whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John and said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I have none. But such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he... Leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which set for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which happened unto them. And as the lame man, which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them on the porch that is called Solomon's Greatly Wondering. And Peter saw it, and he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look so earnestly upon us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk? You see, here is an amazing miracle that has occurred. Someone who has been lame is made to walk and he rightfully rejoices praising God and draws a huge crowd. And here is an opportunity right, for two men to seize the worldly power that would be theirs if they only said we healed this man. But no, they looked at the crowd and said, why are you looking at us as though we could do this? It is simply the power of God working through us. And we as believers should never forget if we do anything good It is the power of God working in you. And I don't mean just so great as healing someone. I mean, sometimes we have to have real patience, don't we? And God has to help us with that. Sometimes we have to have real courage, and God will help us with that. The only power that we have as believers is not in my own strength, but is in fact in God. How many times do I forget that? Multiple times in a day, it seems like. Because I try to do it all on my own. Anyone else experience that? We try to do it all on our own somehow, forgetting the fact that the only power we have comes from God and that apart from God's power, we can do absolutely nothing. We might as well give up. It should be a reminder of us to make sure that we are seeking the power that God wants to give us. There's also power when the word is preached. First Colossians 2 4 through 5 says, This is Paul speaking, says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is another problem that is rampant within churches today. And I know, because I know, Brother Neal, is not a problem here, that men stand behind this pulpit and somehow depend on their fine speaking abilities or the slickness with which they can tell you a story or the humor or whatever it is. They will depend on anything other than the very power of God. And if I stand here today and I do not depend on the power of God, then the power of God is not here And may have no effect on you, save the Holy Spirit intervening in spite of it. The only power that comes from preaching is the power of God, not the power of the speaker. It's very important we understand this. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And if you go back and you study 1 and 2 Corinthians, you realize that Paul is having to argue against Men who are coming in behind him and teaching things that are contrary. And he is reminding them, I didn't come to you, I didn't persuade you of this, I didn't trick you. I came to you with the power of God based on what I was preaching. And so church, you must make sure that those who you listen to, those who you respect, have the power of God. It's vitally important. The power of God is also how we know that we are saved and are a Christian Next chapter over, 1 Corinthians four, eighteen through 20 says, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. You see, here again, the question is, are you filled with the power of God? Because as I've already said, when you are saved, the power of God comes on you to make you a new and living person. And many times when you meet another child of God, you know that there's something different about that person. Well, what is that? Well, it's the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit resting upon them. We must make sure that we have the power of God in our lives. We must be in the lookout for others who have the power of God living in theirs. We also have power in our weakness. Now, this might seem incredibly contrary to everything that I've just said, but it really isn't. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. Paul is giving his testimony about his weakness. And he reminds those who he's writing the letter to, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather glory in my affirmities than the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, brothers and sisters, we are imperfect vessels. We are weak and beggarly, the scriptures tell us. We have no power. And if we can simply step aside from the effort we have, the desire we have to hold the power and let him who is power work through us, then the power goes out to everyone. And sometimes it takes us experiencing an absence of what we think is earthly power to help us rely on his power. Many of you have probably also experienced this. I was touched Sister Judy, as always, by your testimony. But the experience you had where you lost all control, you lost all physical power, brought you closer to the power, did it not? And I can say this has happened in my life, has happened in many people's lives, that when you finally realize you're not really in control, and guess what? We're not in control We can lean into the power of God. And that is the moment when we're most powerful. That is the moment when we can share our testimony. That is the moment in our weakness that his power and strength comes through us. Not in my own power. I'll just read a few more. I don't want to try your patience too much. In 2 Timothy, we are reminded again, chapter 1. 7 and 8 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the affliction of the gospel according, here it is again, to the power of God. We have nothing to be afraid of when we share our testimony. We have nothing to be afraid of when we live a life that is glory and honor to him. But how many times, how many times are we worried about, well, what will someone think if I say this? What will someone think if they know I'm one of those Bible thumpers? What will someone think if I really tell them about my testimony of when I was saved? Because some of us, it's an interesting experience. Do we hold back the power of God that works inside of us among others? Or do we let the power of God go? Are we in a spirit of fear or in power with love and of a sound mind? It's not power as in I'm extra loud. It's not power as in I'm overly boisterous. It's power of God and it's love and it's a sound mind. Can you tell someone about your Lord and Savior? Do you tell someone about your Lord and Savior. Do you know the power of God? Do you share the power of God? Sometimes I think it's because we're afraid. Other times, it's because of 2nd Timothy I believe it's 3 and 5. It says having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. You see, in this scripture, if you go back and read the first part of chapter 3, he's telling us, well, let me just read it, uh, uh, verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, um, heady. High-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power of. You see, we have a serious problem in this world as long as we live, and it's a challenge that none of us ever overcome. The challenge is this. We can have the power of God living in our lives because we are saved. We can know the power of God because we know the scripture. We can uh, try to set ourselves aside and let the power of God work in us. But if we allow sin into our lives, and I just read enough of them there that everyone can identify with one of those. If we allow the uh, power of God to be influenced by the sin nature, we begin to lose the power. And so we must overcome the sin that is in our lives. How do we overcome that? With God's help. And so we must recognize and understand that if we are saved and we go about our lives and any one of those things that I just read in a habitual sense, despisers of those that are good, traitors, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, then we will not have the power of God like we should because sin is going to block that. And ultimately, I guess here's my question for us. Do you err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God? Because if there is one thing that this world needs right now, it's a firm assurance and people who know the Scriptures, who will stand on it as truth no matter what, and who will do so with the power of God. And the power of God doesn't just come from behind this pulpit. It comes out of your mouth and the way that you live if you know Him. And my challenge to you today is, do you know the power of God? Do you know the Scriptures as you ought to? The reality is very simple. Those who've never been saved, those who do not know the free pardon of sin, you do not know the power of God and you do not know the Scripture. You do not believe it. You have not believed unto salvation and there is no time to waste. We do not know when the end comes. Just last week, in my hometown, we had a tragic lesson of this. A fifth grader, riding in his car with a sibling and grandparents, on their way home from school, was hit head-on by another car and killed. Same stretch of road I travel Six, eight times a day. Almost done with school. And we wonder at this. But we also forget that we have no guarantee of tomorrow. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you're healthy or whether you're not, whether you're a good person, quote unquote, or whether you are an evil person, it doesn't matter. God will come and we will be gone in the blink of an eye and it will be too late. You must know the power of God before that time comes, and it is the power of God that will save you, it is the power of God that will hold you, and nothing can take you away from him. The scripture plainly teaches, and I believe this is important Baptist doctrine, so I'll go ahead and say it real quick, that once you are in the palm of God, nothing can take you out of his protection, because he is the power And so the question today is, do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? Because at some point you will be called to account everlasting. And every day, those of us who do know him will be called to account based on our witness. And if we think we're going along just fine, getting on on our own strength, maybe you're doing okay. Imagine what it would be like if you relied on his power. Imagine what God would have you do in his power. Those apostles didn't heal a lame man. The power of God healed a lame man. If you want the power of God to work in your life, if you want all power that God has to work through you, then you must love him with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. You must remove the sin from your life. You must study the scriptures, and you must do his will. And until you've done that, you have no power, and you've done absolutely nothing. And so the challenge I leave with us today is just the reminder... Do you know the scriptures? Do you know the power of God? Because whenever my life is over, none of the rest of this matters. Doesn't matter where I came from, doesn't matter who my family is, doesn't matter what job I have. The only thing that will have mattered was did I meet the power of God and did I submit to it? And did I receive his power and try with everything that I can? to walk in a manner worthy of his calling.